Can I just say no to your kind request and leave it at that? Yes. Fine, of course, I... Of course. Well, I'll just be going. Um, then it was nice to see you. The thing is... With you, I'm in real danger. It seems like a perfect situation, apart from that foul temper of yours. But my relatively inexperienced heart would, I fear, not recover uh, if I was once again cast aside, as I would absolutely expect to be. Uh, there are just too many pictures of you, too many films. <laughs> you know, you'd go and I'd be... Uh, well, buggered, basically. That really is real now, is it? I live in Notting Hill. You live in Beverly Hills. Everyone in the world knows who you are. My mother has trouble remembering my name. Fine. Fine. Good decision. Good decision. fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host, Mike. And today, we're continuing our trilogy with kind of a classic at this point. But before we get into it, I, I've got to... Oh, boy. I, I've got to get a little graphic. I've got to do this little introduction here, because I, I, th I think it sets us up really well and makes me appreciate today's film. I've been dipping my toe into the erotica-slash-steamy-romance subgenre in novels. And, and I, I didn't know what I thought that they would be like. Like, I thought sexy, romantic, a little gross. You know that sweet spot that might hit all three? That's most relationships. <laughs> right? You have to have the a little gross in there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, I, but here's the thing, though. I think the readers of this subgenre... They really want the gross. They're not as interested in the other two. <laughs> the two novels that I've read at this point are, uh, in my humble opinion, pretty insignificant. Uh, completely, whatever the opposite of compelling would be. It seems like the subgenre thus far is a mishmash of uh, plots that you might have experienced uh, in one form or another, in a movie, in another book, in a TV show, uh, stripped down to the bare essentials so that the characters 
can then be also stripped down to their bare essentials for sexy time, which is never as sexy as I want it to be. The gold standard of sexiness, and I've said this multiple times on this podcast, is out of sight. You know, there is that, that perfect sexiness in that movie. Yes. And and so uh, the latest, the, the, the second book that I read, it's called Bait. The, the male protagonist has what's described in the book as this, like, giant donkey cock that's heavily pierced. And there's a scene that in which he hooks his fingers inside the female protagonist's mouth to get her jaw spread open so far. And anyway, this is how these books are written. And it's not sexy. It, it's I would jump in here yeah. and say that our listeners are like, ooh, Notting Hill, lovely. <laughs> they also don't find this sexy or romantic as an opener. Well, see, that's the thing. I rewatched Notting Hill after reading some of these uh, graphic, uh, steamy romance novels. Naturally. You're right. As one does, yes. And lo and behold, I'm like, this is the sexiness, the romance that I've been looking for. Granted, maybe that you know the, the the fans of Notting Hill are not the same fans that are reading these novels, but boy, and you know what? I'm not trying to compare these book talk authors to Richard Curtis, uh-huh. because uh, you know I feel like there has to be some understanding of romance, of love, desire, longing, and so forth. And I don't know what it is that these authors are trying to convey. And maybe the readers just want the graphic sex, and they they want uh, you know these intense scenes loosely connected by i guess i'm going to call it a story but other words escape me at the moment and at the end of the day maybe the subgenre of steamy romance is not for me but i'll tell you what is for me notting hill was it too much to ask for a scene like uh, like the eclectic character sitting around the dinner table uh, attempting con- to attempting to convince one another uh, uh, that the hand that they've been dealt as a shitty one like that scene is so perfect and so heartfelt and so engrossing like why can't a steamy romance novel have something like that how much do you love Notting Hill Mike Mm. Uh, I think I told you um, before because you you went almost two decades or maybe two decades without uh, watching this one right it's been very recently within the last Mm -hmm. year or so I feel like you watched it and yep I was really selling it to you, saying this is on the, the Mount Rushmore of, of rom-coms. Certainly, if you want to say modern rom-coms, which as you and I get older, we get further and further out from this being considered like <laughs> some modern telling. There's there's no smartphones or anything of that, that ilk here. There's old-fashioned paparazzi, uh, a lot of arguments over newspapers, which perhaps dates the film to modern audiences. Even not getting a message from your flatmate. Like, that's that's a thing that maybe later audiences mm-hmm. might not uh, appreciate. That's a very real thing that could have happened. Oh, we are very much back into, uh, like, MTV's The Real World, classic The Real World <laughs> arguments over missed messages and being rude about uh, answering the phone, not realizing that you're, uh, you're really going to cause distress to Hugh Grant's love life here uh, when the top Hollywood actress, which... The film is, uh, I think it's fair to say, pretty meta because Julia Roberts was the top Hollywood actress uh, of this particular decade. Uh, Although there was a lull uh, from, I think people forget, I think they go Pretty Woman straight to My Best Friend's Wedding 
which that was like a seven year gap. But wow. after my best friend's wedding, you have Notting Hill and Runaway Bride, which came out in the same summer in 99. So she went on a sort of mini tear going back to the rom-com genre, which defined her with, uh, with that Richard Gere uh, classic, which you, uh, I think you're in like a Julie Roberts mood because a little behind the scenes, you're like, let's make a trilogy around pretty woman. You wouldn't include that. Much like your erotica talk, you also included one film that I'm like, ah, oh, it's going to ruin the whole fucking thing. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> can we stick to the 90s? <laughs> like, and I don't think it's I don't think it's far off to say that I think the 90s sort of defined the rom-com late 80s to late 90s. I think was that was the time period for this this subgenre, which is now, you know, not really, I guess, theatrically viable or, or hasn't been for for some time. The Judd Apatow effect changed it. Okay, so I wanted to get into that because you you mentioned the the great sequence where um, the the first date. We recently did a first date trilogy, so if you want to go back and check out Crazy Stupid Love and uh, Before Sunrise and Annie Hall, uh, please do so. Like, actually, you can stop listening to this one because we already got your number. Go download those if you haven't already. <laughs> we would appreciate the bump. Um, it has a fantastic first date sequence where this regular everyman is introducing. Uh, this celebrity, this global megastar to his friends. And of course you have the, the sort of amusing separate meet cutes of all of them realizing. And then one poor bastard who doesn't realize he's talking to an incredibly successful <laughs> actress. Um, that sequence, you said, why don't we get more scenes like that in romance? Um, I think that Judd Apatow may be the only ones. I think it's like the bro comedies where you get the guys lamenting like how shitty their lives are that's pretty common like i'm thinking of like john cusack and high fidelity that's pretty much the entirety of the film is explaining to you the audience how shitty his love life is and basically trying to top that with each subsequent like romance each each relationship that he tells you about um yeah certainly you think of uh seth rogan and paul rudd sort of bantering back and forth lamenting their problems with uh, Catherine, Catherine Heigl and Leslie Mann. That's pretty common for dudes to talk about how shitty things are. Mixed company, not so much. And that sequence obviously goes into some... Um, I think it's, you know the, the side characters here have this great romance. Uh, you have this, this woman that's had an accident, and she's now uh, in, a, in a wheelchair, and without dialogue. And Richard Curse is known for you know his, his sort of banter, coming from four weddings and a funeral, and his pairing with Hugh Grant. There's a lot of great stuff that's unsaid here. There's a there's a, a sweet and sour mix uh, that I like, and I, I like the whole sweet and sour of Notting Hill. Julie Roberts is not incredibly likable for long stretches of this movie. Like what she does and says to the man that she will give a great. I'm just a girl saying from a boy speech at the end. She also has a lot of speeches that are pretty uh traumatizing <laughs> to someone that wants to be a romantic partner talking about how she'll regret and rue the day that she ever like stayed over with you grant uh i like the uh i guess the scratches that our, our characters endure here and as unrealistic or maybe as improbable i guess i should say as the situation is of this actress dropping in on this travel bookshop owner's life and starting a budding romance uh there's a lot of realness to it as far as how the um the staples of the genre of these couples that we want to see together, but they have to disengage at some point. The reasoning for their disengagement here are pretty valid. I think on both sides, as far as this probably is just going to be 
an increasingly hurtful relationship because I'm not just we're not just dating each other. We're dating the world at large and their commentary on our our relationship. Uh, it's one that I I watched as a teenager in theaters, and I never thought that I'd be talking about. Um, almost 25 years later, uh, but like I guess a Christmas movie I referenced, rom coms when they work tend to stick with me, and I revisit them in more than most most other genres. Certainly more than what you're reading, Webb. You, gross pervert what are you doing like <laughs> trying to besmirch this sweet movie the movie is absolutely improbable but it tackles the improbability with an earnestness that makes you believe it throughout uh and all of the many speeches that the julia roberts character anna scott here who is just ethereal like she she is kate blanchett in lord of the rings level like holiness in this movie every frame we just don't deserve this level of julia roberts peak form peak form Uh, there's there's one particular spiel that she gives him and she ends it with our perspectives are very different and one of the things that i thought about with this and and you said that yes she is kind of the unlikable one is that a rom-com trope that it wears a little thin to me these days because it seems like the guy the male protagonist is always kind of if not flawless but just kind of the one you're rooting for and you know he has to win over the female who has to conform or or fix herself for the guy Uh, does will have the higher ground when he says that, uh, you know, today's newspapers are going to be completely going to be irrelevant the next day. And she says, no, it's it's always going to stick with me. Does he have the higher ground here? Uh, or does Anna have a point? What, what really matters at the end of the day? How how did you tackle that scene? No, I mean, he's he's in the wrong in that assessment. Yeah, he can take the sort of uh, the the broad view, I guess, and be technically right while completely disregarding in the short term or her, I guess, you know, career ramifications uh, of this. Um, and she's right in saying that it is like for, for most men, it's just going to be a badge of honor. Uh, there's, you know, slut shaming is a, uh, a tradition, uh, <laughs> not just in America, but worldwide. And I do like that the film does seem to recognize that uh, the, the outsider here, the, the American has a tougher time in the UK. Cause I, I think the UK like tabloids are sort of well known as being like the number one draft pick as far as tearing people down. Like we, we do that pretty well in the States, <laughs> but, but over there. And I don't know if that's the Rupert Murdoch effect that he, he owned quite a number of those papers, but you know, they had their own scandals. I believe that came after Notting Hill where they uh, were actually spying uh, on celebrities like cell phones and emails and trying to get dirt. So very aggressive over there. Uh, I guess, you know, TMZ is the Kmart version of, of what they do. But no, it's it's something that he could... Yeah, one day they would laugh about it. Uh, but he's he's willing to skip some some steps. And that's that's also a staple of the, the rom-com genre is that there's a lot of steps that are, are skipped. And if you, if you watch, I guess, reality TV has replaced that. Like, you know, certainly Netflix has gone that direction where people want to watch these uh, very improbable and impractical setups for people dating. And unfortunately that has replaced Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant in a very well-written film that we're going to like, all right, we're going to blindfold two people and see if they fall in love without being attracted to each other. And then we're going to enjoy watching them (laughs) reveal each other to them 
to the 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 I guess the ideal, and then have this like the zoom in on the facial reactions. Like, look how disgusted they actually are. With what they, <laughs> what they think. Like, none of that makes any sort of sense as far as how people naturally like fall in uh, with each other. Um, so I I do think that Julia Roberts has the more difficult part in that she has to be the the one to consistently sort of end and pump the brakes on these things. I will only disagree with you in that I like I do like that it's the the woman putting the brakes on things here. Um usually when it's I guess that's flipped around, um I, I think Richard Curtis also didn't he write the Bridget Jones adaptations as well, very successful around this time period, I think, at least the first one. In those films they when the women are not the ones pumping the brakes, it seems like the film or slash audience blames them for their bad choices here. And how do you feel? Do you feel like Notting Hill, does it ever look at uh, William Thacker as played by Hugh Grant as you knowingly got in over your head? So you uh, have some responsibility here. It's not just that this movie star is mistreating you because yeah, you, you're not privy to the world of fame, the politics of it. Um, by the end of it, he does sort of acknowledge that he's, his heart is like basically too weak to take another breakup. But um, I don't know how how the film feels as far as who, who they're assigning blame to, to why these two, these two crazy kids can't get together. But uh, I think by the end of it, at least the character comes to that conclusion. I don't know if the audience says, I think the audience for the most part is probably blaming the main movie star or Alec Baldwin. When Alec Baldwin shows up, we certainly blame him for making <laughs> take out their trash. But to be fair, he thinks that the guy is just a hotel employee. He, he's not, you know, as much as we, we, you oh, know, you he tips him well. He's like, hey, buddy, oh, my, my bad. You're not the trash guy. Well, I still want you to do it. So here's a hundred bucks. Like, <laughs> they have to make sure that he gets in a jab saying, hey, don't eat too much because I don't want to have a fat girlfriend. Like, that's the throwaway thing at the end. We're like, oh, <laughs> poor Alec Baldwin. <laughs> it's like, there's a part of me that wishes he came in with the prop from Glengarry Glen Ross if he had the, the, the nutsack, the gold nutsack. <laughs> it was just carrying it around the room. I was just going to say, he's not a complete villain like in Glengarry Glen Ross. But, <laughs> no, the film plays it incredibly smart the entire way because you're never assigning blame on either of them. After that initial meeting, okay, yes, she comes back and kisses him, right? Because she, it, it's just overwhelming, I guess, whatever attraction that they have. Great. And once she leaves that message with his roommate... And he eventually gets it. He does seek her out. You know, so she makes that move. And then he decides uh, the, the ball's in his court. Now he can't help but be compelled by her. So it's like they, they do that back and forth constantly. And then she doesn't know where to go after the, uh, you know, potential uh, uh, porn film that, that gets out from her uh, younger actress uh, days. She goes to him because it's a place that she can hide. Yeah, you know, it, it's... It, it, the film is very, very clever in never assigning blame because they find, excuse me, Richard Curtis, I believe. Richard Curtis finds a way to put these characters in situations where it feels kind of natural for them to think back to the other person. So I, I, I like it. I, I like the way that it does. I, I can't imagine an audience member watching this and, and uh, 
putting themselves in the character's shoes and thinking, well, I would have done something completely differently. No, it's all very seductive uh, uh, for both characters. I, I, I think that it, it plays it fair. Usually the job or um, the location, like, uh, you know, my I, if I want to get this promotion, I can't uh, I can't dabble and, and, and pillow talk. You know, I can't I can't I don't have time for this or whatever the reason I live on the West Coast. You live on the East Coast. It'll never work. Uh, it's characters finding reasons for why they can't fall in love for at least 90 minutes. Right. Until we can doing wrap this up in a happy ending. And then all the all the practical problems will just cast them aside for some reason, which does kind of make you hate the characters uh, if you watch too many of these things where you're like you know you you talked around all this this shit as far as why you couldn't be together and then you just <laughs> throw it out the window because uh, it feels good i like notting hill quite a bit because it's really julie roberts it's her character being able to n- not make a calculated decision to if she has a feeling, if she has an inclination to fall for someone, um, that's that's kind of the dream, isn't it? Like you're not supposed to decide, well, this person checks all the boxes on this, like the, this will fit into my career, this will move me forward in this one avenue of my life. So when she kisses him, you, I don't think you get the impression that she just like was swooning over him at the bookstore when she drops in to just browse and, and shop as a regular person. Uh, she's certainly not pleased with him when he runs into her with a thing of, of orange juice. Uh, you know, that's a practical decision. I just need to get off the street. You know, now I'm going to draw attention to myself. Um, but after that is handled, uh, I think I think it is just a, a whim. And in her case, as we talked about, as far as the paparazzi and all of this, um, it's allowing her to not be calculating, but the world keeps basically asking her to put the, the personal into the professional. He he becomes part of her professional saga. Um, and she even says something to the effect of, um, I have a boyfriend and this is after the, uh, you know, the, the cleanup, the bellhop sequence with Hugh Grant. And he's like, you have a boyfriend. And she's like, well, as far as they know, <laughs> I do like in my personal life, we have broken up, but we have not released this. We have not put out these statements. So it doesn't really matter. As far as the world is concerned, I am, now cheating on this man who I no longer have a personal relationship with. It's a very interesting look at it as far as, and it's one that actually does matter to a certain degree. Uh, you know, when you hate, um, I think unreasonably so, Kate Hudson. When Kate Hudson <laughs> and her like 2000s rom-coms, you know, is fucking around with Matthew McConaughey to get the promotion at whatever magazine she works for. And I, I don't, I can't remember if he's at a competing magazine. I don't know. It's all nonsense. As much as I enjoy those movies, um, it's, it doesn't really matter. Like it's she, most of the protagonists in rom-coms of this time period basically were authors of like listicles or something <laughs> like this is no one probably even knows their fucking name. Julia Roberts though. And it does help that it's Julia Roberts. I did read that Julia Roberts was like the only one they had in mind for this. I think Hugh Grant also because of his, uh, previous, uh, working relationship from four weddings and funeral was the only one they wanted they knew they could get him. They had him in the bag. They were like, right, we're buddies with him. They didn't think they could get Julia Roberts. Uh, and it is hard to think of another actor in this role other than Julia Roberts. I don't think that if it was like an up-and-comer, it would have the sort of gravitas to it that Julia Roberts did, considering who she was at the time. And one reason I adore this movie is it feels sort of classic Hollywood in that yeah. way. It feels yep. like it's rare that you get a movie star playing a part that is designed for them in such a way that comments on their movie stardom and their place in our world. People who have never met her 
we are these characters that see her in the travel bookshop and would become completely at a loss for words just at being in the mere presence of Julia Roberts. It is, uh, I'm glad that I guess, you know, she enjoyed the material and she did it because we have this film solely because of, of her. Uh, and Hugh Grant was, you know, mildly amusing as well. Like my right. wife really loves his whoopsie daisies line readings quite a bit. That's, that's the high point for her. Now, this film is not flawless, but it doesn't have to be to be perfect. But the flaws do always come to mind when I'm watching it. I, th I think it's heavier on the ROM, not so much on the COM. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, oh, wow, that, that probably could have been taken out. There's an entire section uh, right before... Not a Spike fan, I'm guessing. Oh, no. Nah. No, not at all. Not a fan. <laughs> not a fan of Spike at all. Like... <laughs> You know, the moment I always forget, Webb, uh, which always throws me off because, you know, that maybe this is that erotica you're looking for, that Spike only notices that Anna Scott, this movie star, is in his life when he is going up into his bathroom to jerk off to her leaked uh, nude pictures in a tabloid magazine and that we had a mainstream release have a huge reveal uh, where two characters meet, where one character was about to masturbate <laughs> to her nude images and then turns around and she is actually in his bathroom <laughs> that he was going to masturbate in to her, <laughs> to her nude body. I am totally thrown off by that. I always forget that sequence. It may not be the sweetest, but that's the sour I'm looking for. <laughs> that was a great comedic setup. Absolutely, like a great situational comedy. However, we've got stuff like uh, a Martin played by James Dreyfus, who I absolutely adore. He's in a television show called The Thin Blue Line with Ron Atkinson, and he, he's wonderful in it. And so it's so fun to see him play kind of the goofball uh, assistant at the shop. Uh, the, the wonderful Just a Girl sequence and, and monologue is preemptive by this entire exchange about the movie Ghost. You don't like... Martin just admitting that he's he's always been he's always been a always been a bit of an ass. I, I like how he exits that, which is the self awareness of yeah. I'm I am the constant goofball in everyone's life. The actor James Dreyfus plays it really well, but again, it's a scene I'm like, eh, like, and I know uh, as soon as she is in that shot, you're like, alright, we're getting to the scene of the film. And it's preempted by this nonsensical ghost uh, exchange that I'm like, I, I get what you're going for, Mr. Curtis, but I feel like there could have been a little bit of editing done here. Uh, uh, there are, yeah, Spike especially has a bunch of stuff that I'm like, ah, all right, like the T-shirt gag, like like the alien, like really is is that something that we need to? Anyhow, some of the other flaws are minor stuff. Like I think the soundtrack is a little too like sometimes on the nose. Ain't no sunshine playing throughout the the seasons, the big filmy scene. I think that would be my the song, the the reoccurring song, especially in this like beautiful like. Uh, let's go sneak into a, a park at night. Um, it's a little too time stamped. Like I'm sure yeah. that was just like popular on the radio at the time. That I will agree with you there. Only on that that this that's what keeps it for me on the nerdy letterbox world from a perfect five stars is uh, the music choices are, yeah, not so timeless. I prefer a good score 
You know, give me a good score that's going to stay with me rather than uh, uh, let's see what's on the top billboards, whatever list. The one thing that, God, the Just a Girl is so good. It's so fucking good. And I think it's nearly ruined by the dissection scene that happens right after it. You've hit gold. You've, You've got... The Just a Girl scene, brilliantly written. You don't need, to, you don't need to insist upon it, as if to say, "Hey, wasn't that great?" You've got the character sitting around talking about it, and I'm like, "Oh no, oh, this no. is so unnecessary." No, no. Here, here's here's where you're wrong. Oh my god. Here's where I think you're wrong. Oh my god. On this instance, uh, first off, Spike is great in this because he doesn't even hear. He doesn't need a speech. He just comes in. His the friends don't really agree with this because she's beautiful and they've been charmed by her, whatnot. Um, you know, financially speaking, it's a terrible move for this failing travel book salesman to not hitch his wagon to a movie star. Spike doesn't have to hear anything. He comes in the room and they're like, "Hey, um, yeah, uh, Hugh Grant here just turned down Julia Roberts, and I believe it's an immediate you daft prick." And the, the, I love the friends are like, no, 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 this is actually a good thing. This is what we're, <laughs> we're being supportive here. But so you're saying that they were, uh, it was a little bit too much of a um, victory lap for the uh, the screenplay here. They wanted to do a callback to their own great, great material where Hugh Grant's like, you know what actually yes. was pretty cool was that. I think I, I dig it. Um, I, I get what you're saying from like a intellectual sort of stance, but I, I dig it. Because I feel like it fits thematically with the movie that Hugh Grant doesn't realize that he's like living in a rom com. Like these regular people have all these like actual problems. Like you have uh, a married couple; they can't have children anymore. Like, and they do, you know, they do bring that up. Spike actually brings it up in one of their arguments, where he's like, he's he's going to mention starving children in the Sudan here. But Hugh Grant is not allowed himself to be sort of swept away by these the, the grand gesture here. And I love it because you get to see the faces of people who probably will never get to witness a grand gesture in their love life. And they're looking at their fucking idiot friend who's like, you know, it was kind of cool when she said this amazing fucking speech that's like, you know, that and something out of Jerry Maguire. Jerry Maguire and Notting Hill, like, are the two titans of the 90s as far as these great speeches that characters give to each other. And it's not so much for me the shot behind their heads that pans and it's like focusing on Hugh Grant. It's, it's the reversal when it's all of them, like, and it's this incredibly, like, harsh punch to the face where all of them are like, well, I've never had anything like that to me. <laughs> and this fucking adult is just throwing it in the trash. <laughs> I love it. I actually think that's a great comedic beat. I don't take it so much as a uh, pat on the back themselves. I think it's just real people in the audience having the nicest possible reaction of this guy's a fucking idiot and I hate his guts <laughs> in this moment because they're his friends. <laughs> I I guess that's a way to look at it. I uh, maybe one day I will come around to that point of view. But for me, it, it's it's Richard Curtis being a little too proud of himself. Uh, you dick, you already you, you did it. You don't need to pat yourself on the back. Uh, but that's all right. Webb, if I had written this thing, I would do it six more times. I would have <laughs> characters on the street being like, I was walking past and overheard this woman giving this great speech. <laughs> Okay, once you turn into a running gag, then it then it then it comes around and becomes good again. 
I did read that the initial cut for this was three and a half hours long, and I can't even imagine a film uh, wow. of, of yeah. And ninety minutes had to be cut, and thankfully it, it was. I, I didn't need a scene where where Hugh Grant pulls out his giant horse cock that's pierced and it goes, you know, the, the, the film goes completely awry. If I ever get the, I guess I would call it the Curtis cut, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to say, like, I'm it's pretty damn, I think I'm pretty damn skippy that there is no horse cock, maybe, <laughs> maybe an extended horse and hounds magazine segment in the Curtis cut. <laughs> That's the last thing anyone needs. That's how we open the show. That's how we're going to end it. 